Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe. This week's podcast takes a look back at one of Ireland's fastest-growing manufacturing companies, Clondalkin Paper Mill. The mill was located in the village of Clondalkin beside the Camac River and built in the 19th century. The clear fresh water was ideal for paper making and it was run by Thomas Seary and Son Limited. The business was booming during World War I but quickly went downhill after the war and closed in 1922. And it stayed closed until 1937. After there was a change in government and it was Eamon de Valera's initiative to get manufacturing going in our new republic. They were different men in those generations. Those men were dedicated to building up the country once we got our independence. They weren't looking, they didn't need bonuses. In this podcast, you will hear memories of Dr. Bert Cusick, managing director of the mill, and his leadership there. Tremendous determination to get the company moving ahead. He was a gentleman of yeah. the old school, uh, very polite, very clever. He was clever. He was a great historian and he was terrific at English and he had a mathematical brain. You'll hear stories of how the workers made pulp out of straw and rags during the emergency period. And you had to get down into a, a red hot pit of water and drain it all off. And they used to bring it up onto the beaten off. Generations of family members who were working in the mill. Daddy brought me down. He was in the sack factory. And he brought me down and introduced me to this fellow called Arthur Barrett. And the fine quality paper that was manufactured in the mill. One of the other very technical papers that I was involved in, and it was a terrific thing, it was for the British Health Service. The local supply of timber to the mill. My job was to go out, visualize the timber, put in a tender for it, and see to it that the right quantity of timber came into the yard. So let's get started. Albert, better known as Bert Cusick, qualified as an engineer, and his first job was with the ESB, and he was involved in the rural electrification scheme before he joined Clondalkin Paper Mills when it reopened in 1937. This is explained here by his daughter, Anne Cusick. He worked for DSB, originally putting up the poles across the Wicklow Mountains to elect rural electrification scheme. And somewhere or other down the line, he was recruited by the people who had bought the paper mills, which had been lying derelict, and they were rebuilding it, and they were going to reopen it. And they sent him to Edinburgh to work in the paper mills over there. Why, for, do, why do you think they picked your father to do the job? No idea. He wasn't interested in telling you about history, so he, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, I just know letters asking him to go or that so I don't know so he went over um, he was in Edinburgh I think for about a year maybe possibly a year and a half 
And then um, he came back. I, I don't know what it was named, the paper mill he worked in over there. But he came back then and they started rebuilding the paper mills. I think it might have been open at that stage. He started as assistant general manager and finished as managing director. And during the emergency, the burning of peat was used instead of coal due to the embargo on coal coming into Ireland. War broke out and of course they had to rejig then the mill to make it run on damp turf or any old combustibles they could get and rejig the whole place. And um, Dad was involved in a lot of that and some of the older men would say, well, had said to me that he was a good man to work for because he wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty. If he couldn't do it, he wouldn't ask somebody else to do it. And another big change in the early 60s was the arrival of the new computer and having to build new buildings to install this computer. In those days it was a very small organisation, it was all on one side of the road. So you didn't have the breakdown that came later when they built offices and the computer system over across the road. So then it was kind of them over on the far side of the road and the office workers here. We had this massive, this was the, the major, first major big computer we got. And uh, it was bigger than this room, I would oh, say, oh, Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. The whole office yeah. had to be cleared out. So Derek Breen and Des Tannum operated the computers at the mill. Well, we got the first big one in, uh, what was it, Derek, 1966? 66. There were, from that company, there were three installed. Turned off in paper mills, gluten fertilizer, and the sugar company in Mallow. Yes. And they were the only ones from that company, and there were very few others, except in government. I think Revenue had one. Those day, these days, when we were talking about what we're talking about now, everything had to be written as a program. And that's what Derek and Eddie Scott, and then Hugh later did. You couldn't get anything off the shelf. Yeah. You had to design a program and write down what you wanted, and then it was written. That was your job, Eric, was it? Yes, I suppose more importantly, uh, in terms of the computers then, that, that had no memory, uh, nor had it any <coughs> disk capacity. So okay. for the initial programs we had, they were um, punch cards. I don't know if you're familiar with the originally 80-column punch cards, and the data had to be contained in that, and every morning you read that into the, this massive big machine, like... It was an extraordinary life. Was he totally dedicated man? Absolutely. He wasn't an egghead like here. They they were a different men in those generations. Like, if you look at the names of the board of directors, you've got names of the people, like O'Rahilly and the McArdles from up Dundalk Way, um, the people that founded O'Brien's from Edenderry, um New Ireland Assurance, I can't remember who that family were, but they were they were all, those men were dedicated to building up the country once we got our independence, they weren't looking they didn't need bonuses to say oh we achieved this profit so we're due a bonus they worked because they were working they were getting paid and they were to do, mm. well you know that's a, a typical example that dad always held up to me and he says value that when you're working for somebody else. He said they were buying new machinery after the Second World War and he was going out to Canada to buy it or America and 
he was in in front of the board of directors and they said to him, Mr. Cusack, if you were paying your own money to buy this machine, would you buy it? Yes, chairman, I would, he said. Fair enough, go and buy it. Um, but when we were kids, we were there nearly on Sunday, five of us tra- and the dog trailing behind Dad as he checked out. That would have been in the early 60s when they went to seven-day-a-week production. Um 168 hours um, so he'd take us down probably out of the mother's hair and just make sure everything was going on okay round and round so that was Sundays Jim Noren was born in 1921 at Newlands Cross he joined the paper mill in 1940 and he worked in the straw pits where they made pulp out of straw and rags during the emergency period and this happened because the imported pulp stopped during the war years. Jim Nolan and Tommy Kill recall those days. Did the farmers bring in the straw then, locally? The farmers, yeah. They used to throw the straw. Do you remember them? I remember there was rags. Rags, yeah. Was that um, brought in by the, um, Mr. Smith, was it? Wolfson. Who? Wolfson. Dude. And who was Wolfson now? Uh, he was a Jew man. <laughs> he was in Townsend Street. And he used to collect up the rags and they used to go in and the Minahans really paid all paid the Minahan Minahans were um the transport were transport uh, people and they lived in the main street in Condoga. In fact the Minahans still live there. Yeah. They are the only family in living in Condoga Main Street. There were two big boyers and they used to put that bed the straw down into it and Six old or whatever the car used to call it, as chemicals into it, and then it used to come down into a pit, and you had to get down into a a red hot pit with water and drain it all off, and they used to bring it up onto the beaten loft, and they went onto the machines then, the straw, the paper, it was straw and rags. There were the choppers chopping up the straw, and yeah. There was a man called Paddy McToy was on our ship and he used to swede yeah. it over to us and we'd pour it in with forks. Yeah. And then they'd put on the boiler to boil it up and sink, let it, the fitter would come along then and after so many hours and they'd drop the boiler and then you had to get down and make a, like a river, cut it, and drain it off, the water off. And the lads with the wheelbarrows would be putting her up to the beaten loft. Oh, it used to be a great laugh, you know. You'd have a laugh, you know. Michael David qualified as an engineer in 1957. He joined the mill in 1962. And he talks here about the new building that he designed. But first he describes Bert Cusick's work ethic. Strong character and uh, tremendous determination to get the company moving ahead he was constantly looking at uh, other similar operations in other countries and trying to adapt the limited resources that he had in Clondalkin to manufacture paper uh, in competition with much larger enterprises in Sweden and Denmark and and, uh, throughout the continent not to mention Scotland and mm. England. 
your engineering role there, uh, what does it entail? Well, initially it entailed uh, construction. I was responsible for construction of a, an extension, a major extension. At that time they had acquired um, Swiftbrook paper mills and Drimna paper mills and they were in the process of uh, amalgamating their operations with their own. They bought those two paper mills for their uh, for, for, for the um, the sales to, to generate additional sales. They didn't operate uh, either of them for any length of time and consequently the workforce in Drimna in particular had to be assimilated into the Clondalkin operations. I was charged with the responsibility of building building what was referred to as a SAL, S-A-L-L-E it's a mm. French term for and used in the paper industry for sorting the paper. Talk to me about the workforce were they skilled Workers. I mean, did was there generations of, of say the the same family there and and from a skill point of view, did they go through apprenticeship? Uh, is this what you witnessed? Or well, on the uh, maintenance side, yes, uh, there were formal um, apprenticeships there. Uh, on the paper making side, people came in from primary school, I suppose, and worked uh, in the mill and gradually assimilated the work practices and gradually got more and more responsibility. It was uh, learning on the job, literally, rather than being formally trained yeah. as such. But there were uh, generations, certainly in my time, I remember. Um, do, do bear in mind that the, the operation restarted sometime around 1936, so most of the people that came in there Initially, they were from Scotland because there was a core of expertise in Scotland making paper, fine papers. Uh, and gradually, they trained up the local population and uh, they became charge hands and, and uh, foremen. The village of Clondalkin mushroomed over the years and nearly every family had somebody working in the mill. And in some cases, you had the same generation after generation in the mill. Carl Welch is one example. In Trondalkin? In the village? In the, in the village, I know where the bank is at the moment, the Bank of Ireland. That yeah. was our house. And that, that car park yeah. was our garden. And what did your father do for a living? He was in the sack factory, bike factory. In the village? In Trondalkin, yeah. He was the foreman in that. He wasn't the manager. He was the foreman. Mr. Dagnall was the manager. He came from England. Yeah. Daddy brought me down. He was in the sack factory. And he brought me down and introduced me to this fellow called Arthur Barrett. I'll never forget his name. And he was he used to make up the size to, to put into the paper. So it's a liquid, it's a chemical. He used to have to boil it up and get it ready. So he said to me, he'd get that brush and sweep the floor. They had to go onto the pulp loft, onto the breakers and the beaters. Then I went down to the, the after cutters and the reeler. And then I went on to learn about the machines. And who taught you? Uh, the fellows working there. 
So, you know, you, you did what you were told. It yeah. took me about five, six years. Yeah. But Dr. Sherry, who was the chemist there, he was very good. Very good for the young people. Yeah. And Mr. Cusack, who was the assistant manager at the time, we were all afraid of him. <laughs> but he had a little dog, he was, and when, he, when you saw the dog coming down the mill, you knew he was on the way, so you were all... I was prepared for him to come. <laughs> I think he got a dog put down in the end. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got these things you, you come to come to mind. You yeah. know, little things and were great. I was called production planning controller. Don Dardis and his wife Catherine from the village of Clondalkin both worked in the mill. We were the middlemen between sales on one side and production on the other. We used to take the information that the salespeople would gather and all the orders they would take in and we would collate them and get them together and put get them and schedule them so that the different machines through the different machines, the paper making, the reel and the cutting, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you're and, and the material and of course handling or looking after them or uh, what would you say, forecasting and organising the materials that goes into making these things. And what but year did you go, did you join the company? 1949, I think. And in 49, my God, it was early years, wasn't mm, it? Very small, was small enough at that time, yeah, small, much smaller. It was only about 200 people, I think, implied at that time. And and so, Catherine, can I go come back to you and talk to you about the... Um, when you talk about the, the the chemistry work you were doing, there must have been a lot of toxic material that you were dealing with, dangerous material. <laughs> not, in, not in terms of the times, actually. There was, nothing was regarded as toxic. I mean, I, I know benzene we used to use in the lab for things which, you know, would have been regarded as a carcinogen later. But in terms of the time, in, in terms of the paper, there was nothing. There really was nothing. Um, I mean, okay, you had the wood pulp, you had the water, you had the dyes, you had optical bleach, and, like, there was nothing. As I say, there would have been chemicals that I would have used more in research or in my undergraduate years that would have been regarded later as toxins Mm. than what we used in them. It was quite... It was reasonably simple chemistry, you know, in that but was sense. there pollution coming out? Oh, yeah, there oh. was. Now, there was. Pollution. I mean, you would... We made what were called bonds and banks and other papers, GIPs, which would have had quite nice colours. And you would, if you... As I would occasionally be getting the train home to Cork and the river might have a pink colour, the Liffey. <laughs> you know, one of the other very technical papers that I was involved in, and it was a terrific thing, it was for the British Health Service. And it was a, a specialised paper to wrap surgical instruments oh, for uh, sterilisation. And th- the specification now that was on this paper was extremely, extremely tight. And I had to go over to Woolwich, to the arsenal in Woolwich, to be interviewed yeah. as the chief chemist of the mill and sign that all the paper 
that would go out to this manufacturer would be to this specification. And I remember when it happened, when we we produced it for a while and it was going well, and then there was a batch made, and one of the specifications wasn't exactly. I mean, supposing it had to be less than twenty, and it was twenty-one, and I remember saying, "I'm not going to sign it." And one of the sort of technical managers there at the time said, "But you know, you know." It's really, it's not going to be. And I said, no, I won't sign it. I couldn't. I had said I would, you know, be responsible for this and it was going to be used in operations and I wouldn't do it. And in fairness, like I remember the rest of us said, there's not a question about it. Of course you don't sign it. Unless that hmm. specification is to. And there was never a word about it afterwards. It was sort of a little temporary, will you? No, grand. So there was, there was a terrifically, oh, it was a great place to work. In the early 50s, groups of men were hired for three weeks at a time to collect pulp from the boats coming in at the docks. They were known as the Pulp Squad, and Leamstone was one of those. Usually, you have the, what they call the Pulp Squad. The pulp boats, the boats used to come in with loads of pulp as a base for the, for the paper. And you were heard... Those groups of people hired for to do that work. Now it is only last three weeks, maybe. They did, they, strangely enough, they used to make sure it didn't last much more than four weeks because they'd have to give you a day's holiday. That's the way it's a day, a day, a month, you know, this sort of way. So these these probably knock you off before the month and then bring you back again, you know, this type of thing. Anyway, uh, uh, the. The job, pe- people were given permanent jobs from the squad. You know, they, they'd pick so many people mm-hmm. if they needed them to, to, to go into the factory proper. That's how, that's how you started off. So, and then you could be at anything until you, be, until you get a fixture of a job. You know, it could be, it could be uh, in the, the cleaning end of it. Uh, things like that, you know, you could be supplying, you could be supplying the the beating off, as they call it, where where the where the the whole process starts. So that was your job, waiting in the mills, waiting for the pub to come off the trucks. That's it. And then, and we'd stack it. There was one each side of the bales. The bales were quite heavy, you know. But, yeah. Uh, and we stacked them like steps of stairs until you got to a certain height. Mm-hmm. And then you you, you, you you squared it off then if you can, you know. But uh, Was that manually, no, without any manually, Yes, it was manually. Yeah. yeah. That's what I say, like it was manual. And, and then it ended up then, they, uh, it got modernised. They had, uh, as well as having forklifts, they had these grabs. Do you know the grabs? Yeah. And they, they just lift up three or four bears at a time. That done away with the squad, the 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 the, 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 the stacking of the pulp. You were left redundant then after. Well, you that's you weren't needed for that end of the yeah. But you were driving a forklift or something, you know. Yeah. Deirdre Dowling joined the Clondalkin Paper Mills in 1963. Her first job was quality controller of the reams of flat paper under a supervisor.
Can you go through it with me and explain exactly what it was that you did? Well, every sheet, every sheet of paper had to be perfect. And any little slight flaw in the paper had to be taken out. You couldn't send out anything that wasn't perfect. And how would you spot that? I mean, Well, that's the train you got. You, got the, you just get a trained eye. They train you to, to spot out the, the imperfections in the paper. Yeah. Different lines or spots or wasn't a straight edge on the sheet, you know things like that. So you would be that's what you got trained for, is to do all that. And then the, the counting them and sorting them. I mean, was that something that you knew? That that was another skill because you had to be able to fold the paper in a certain way, so that you could count it in five sheets at a time. You couldn't just count one sheet at a time. You'd be there all day. You'd have to count it in five sheets because you'd have to count maybe a hundred reams a day. Uh, you'd, you'd go through if you were you were very busy for to get um, what we would call it. The more the more reams you did, the, the better your bonus got because you were <coughs> pardon you were on a flat flat week's wages, and then you got a bonus by counting so many reams after that. And th- th- this was incentive uh, to, to to work longer to work, hours yeah, and to work to work harder and to get more more paper out faster. It, it must have been going at a hundred miles an hour there. There's <laughs> lots of times you couldn't talk; you wouldn't take your eyes off the table yeah. because be, you're watching your your paper that it was wasn't going out uh, with any faults in it. And then you would have to make sure that the, the counting was correct, because if it was wasn't counted right, you'd be in trouble there. And uh, was it an assembly line that you, you know that you were? You must have been standing all day. Oh, we were, we were standing all day. There was big long benches. They were about eight foot long, and there would be, they could be in about twelve foot wide, and there would be four on each side of that walking four four girls on each side of that walking you just have a space where you put paper there the men would come put paper up on the table for you then you would lift it over you would count it sort it count it and then you would put it into another section of your table the men would come and take that down onto a pallet and then you'd build up your pallet up so high and then they, they would take it away down with a lifter so that's what we did all day. John Clark worked in the mill from 1953 until 1980. He worked first in the salt department, which was a paper storing office. Here he talks about the great wages at that time. Actually, I worked in the salt first, salt department, that was the load, the loading bay. And then they asked me, would you like to come up to the yard and yeah. do chip work and work the forklifts and that? I don't mind. I was, I got more money in it then. then yeah. yeah. And I, was, I would increase the wages and everything like that. Because them, them days, Tommy, yeah. to you, yeah, them days the wages were fantastic. Yeah. I was coming home at 50, 1960. You could have a five or six hundred pound a week. Because mm-hmm. the opportunities were there for you to walk. It wasn't that hard. Well, the only thing you lost a bit of sleep and that if you want to do doubles 
I, I was the old saying in the in the mail that time was you know, the two two had to hate me. That's up who's going to do do double. That's the way it is, you know. But I, I never in double shift. Yeah. 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 And there was travel time paid on a Sunday. And then the, the lads got too cocky in themselves and that you and the other fellow, oh, you want, you're on double time, I want travel time. Sunday. So the boss got on the hair this and there was a little bit of this commotion about this, that and the other, get more money than the other fella. And I wasn't going to work with travel time and, do, you know, I'm only getting double time. So that's where the animosity came in. Mm. Jealousy, you know, that. It started to creep in. That, yeah. it did creep in, it did. Yeah. Very, very bad at that, that time because it was the downfall to me of the meal between workers. In the 1950s, Joe Stagg was working for the Department of Lands as State Forester. In 1960, he left that job to join Clondalkin Paper Mills. I was forester in charge in Sagard Forest, having done three years training in Avondale Forestry School in Wicklow. And thereafter I was uh, assigned to various forests around the country as an assistant forester. And in 1957, I was appointed forester in charge of Roundwood Forest in County Wicklow. And uh, after being there for three years, I was transferred to Sagart in uh, County Dublin. And after three years there, and I was the youngest forester in Ireland ever to get married, the children were just beginning to get ready to go to school. I was transferred to Kilkenny, and I didn't like it. And I got a job in Clondalkin Paper Mills to look after their timber intake to ensure that it was of the right quality, not species of trees that was unsuitable for paper making. And I was there posted at different positions over the 21 years. I was first of all put in, uh, put in I was involved in research and checking the kind of timber that was coming in. And thereafter, I was appointed uh, in charge of the debarking operation because timber has to be debarked before you make paper out of it. And thereafter, I was appointed woodland supervisor when Clondalkin began to buy timber directly rather than from contractors, directly from the Department of Forestry. And I, my job was to go out, visualise the timber, put in a tender for it and see to it that the right quantity of timber came into the yard. That was my full occupation in Clondalkin Paper Mills. And Joe explains the difficulty it was to buy the right timber for the mill with the amount of competition around at the time. And, you know, I had to evaluate the value of the timber to put in a tendering price for each lot that I looked at yeah. and hope that it was better than the other fellow. Yeah. Because there were people from Bowwaters and Atai, Scarif Chipboard, the other various mills, there were about five of them set up all over the country at the one time, using the same kind of timber. But Clendalkin was more fussy because they were confined to spruces to make paper. Pines will not make paper in the conditions that, in the in the paper making conditions that existed in Ireland at that time. Mm. Talk to me about Sagard and the the forestry there. Yeah, Sagard is a relatively because I was put in charge of Sagard uh, when there were about uh, thirty men involved, thirty workers, and it was purely at the time 
continuing to, to, to plant more ground coming in. For instance, Crooksling has been planted since I left and so on, and there was more land added all the time. And a certain amount of thinning of the older parts of the forest took place at the same time as well. Mm. That were, they were the main operations, thinning and planting, thinning and replanting. And, and, and the harvesting of timber, that it, when did that happen and well, how did it happen? Harvesting has evolved enormously over the years. It's entirely mechanical now. In my time, it was a chainsaw and you cut the branches with the chainsaw and you cut the trees into different lengths as required for the purchaser and so forth. Now, in a lot of cases, when somebody bought timber from the department a lot of timber that would be marked with paint the trees that were to be felled were marked with paint right throughout the forest the contractor who bought the timber felled it himself in other words if Clendalkin bought a lot of timber we had to get a contractor to go in and fell it and trim it and haul it back into the mill nowadays it's most of that cutting up is done on site he was also sent on an assignment abroad to suss out the right kind of machinery for the mill. Eventually, and I was sent abroad uh, to, to, to Scandinavia and to Germany to see the, the, the type of machinery that was being developed. Uh, there, were, there was machinery introduced, first of all, into the yard in Clendalkin with grabs that would grab the timber out of the stacks mechanically rather than physically and, in, and into the debarker for to take the bark off uh, uh, we purchased what was known as a poke lane uh, crane for to do that by, by crane work rather than by, ha by hand uh, and then uh, the, the lorries became equipped with a smaller version of a, of a grab holder as well to load in the forest onto the truck rather than the men lifting the logs up it is so hard and so heavy and wet and that, that labour was all taken out by means of hydraulic mechanical lifting. Danny and Mary Curtin were originally from Cork. They both worked in Clondalkin paper mills. And Mary explains here that she was the private secretary for the managing director, Bert Cusick. Then I travelled when I was in my 20s. I worked in London for three years. I went to Switzerland for two years. And when I was about 30, then I thought maybe I'd come home and uh, <coughs> saw an advertisement in the paper for Clondalk and Paper Mills, went for the interview and was thrilled when I got it. I loved Clondalk and I loved the village and I liked the people. And it was so quaint then with the little stone cottages, the round tower and the family atmosphere because I had travelled a bit and you'd be incognito in London or whatever. So this was like home from home. And uh, <clears throat> we were with good times, great crack, and Dr. Cusick was a dream to work for. He was such a gentleman, old-style mm. gentleman, and very polite and all that. So I really liked him as a person as well. And then we used to go to the local pub then for, you know, Christmas and this and that, and then I met my husband, also a corkman, and he told me, I said, why aren't you married? Because <clears throat> uh, we were a little bit on. And he said, well, he said, oh, if she had a Cork accent, I'd marry her. But I never met her until now. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it was his secretary, you know, in those days people had private secretaries or whatever. So uh, his secretary, and it would be important for the secretary to like her boss. I mean, you couldn't work for a man that you didn't like. 
So that was the first thing that you liked, and he must have liked me too, and we got on well together for 20 years. I would never have left like until it closed down. He would have uh, assistants, uh, Dr. Peter Sherry was assistant general manager, and uh, he was a clever man. He was a chemist, and he was in charge of the laboratory, and that would be his area. And then he had another man uh, who was a director, Paul McKee. He was, again, a clever man. And they all were, in those days, uh, you know, clever and work-oriented and all that. So um, they all worked well with him. Danny, what part of Cork are you from? I'm from uh, Cullen, Cullen near Mill Street in County Cork, North Cork, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sorry, Mary, I never asked you, what part of the, the, the Cork are you Oh, from? yeah, Cork City, it's Glasheen Road near UCC. I see. Mm. So, uh, a city girl versus... Uh, a, a, a country pumpkin, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what brought you to Clondalkin? Um... Well, like Mary, I travelled for a couple of years when I finished my secondary school. And uh, I came home, I think it was about 1959. And in uh, 1960, I had no job. And uh, I was invited by the nuns in Clondalkin to come up and do some painting in the monastery, in the, in, in the convent, on Monastery Road. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then I discovered that Clondalkin paper mills was in the, in the same um, in the same parish if you like and uh, I applied for a job in the paper mills and uh, I got the job as a clerk in the dispatch and transport office. And was it in, in the soon after you came up? Uh, it was uh, I'd say, What uh, year was it? Uh, it was 1960. I was in the, uh, in the convent in the monastery road for um, a couple of months painting and decorating and uh, while I was there, then I got the job. Well, the I think the first job I had was writing out, handwritten, of course, uh, dispatch dockets for the transport people. The trucks would be loaded up with the paper, going to all over Ireland, and uh, I would have. It was my job to write out the dispatch dockets and um, invoices, that sort of thing. Yeah. And after about a year or so doing that, then I got promotion up to be a. Um, a supervisor, a dispatch supervisor on the factory floor. Was it difficult, uh, you know, uh, having, uh, say, your 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 wife there mm. working with you mm. as 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 the boss's uh, secretary? Was was there any? No, not really. No, I mean, before we got married, anyway, she Mary worked up in the with the, with the boss, as it were, and uh, that was in the the office, yeah, the yes, office. And the people in the paper mill, well, I think we were, we didn't communicate all that much with them. It was a, bit, a little bit of, well, I can't think of the word. Yeah, yeah, but uh, so uh, what I'm saying really is I or the people working in the actual paper mill, bear in mind there were two separate lots. You had the office block across the Nanga Road and you had the paper mill where the work was done on the other side of the Nanga Road. So there was a natural divide between the office people and the people in, in the paper mill. 
Well, they were quite big offices by today's standards. They were lovely offices, uh, modern for their day. He had a very big corner site for himself. And then he had the outside office, which would have been as big as this room for the secretary. And, you know, people would tap on the door before they'd come in, you know, and you'd announce them, that sort of thing. I mean, it's like Miss Money Penny or somebody. Yeah. I mean, that job is long gone, but uh, it suited me at the time. I liked the people. He was a gentleman of yeah. the old school, uh, very polite, very clever. He was clever. He was a great historian, and he was terrific at English, and he had a mathematical brain. And I think some people who are good at maths are not good at English or history, but he had the two of them together. He could write great letters, and I got to try and keep up with him, you know. But uh, I learned a lot from him. His English was terrific, his words, everything. He was a clever man in every way. And a time came when Bert Cusick, managing director, stepped down. And Danny explains here, the new manager, Henry Lund, and the changes he made as soon as he arrived. I, I don't think there was any breakdown between the, the, the management and, 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 and the workforce. We, we, one point we should remember at this point, you see, Clondoken Paper Mills was the old woman who spawned a lot of other companies. It became the Clondoken Group. So the Clondoken Paper Mills became... You're the Clondoken Group, which in effect owned Clondoken Paper Mills, Cahills, Bailey Gibsons, Guys and Cork, and quite a lot of other companies in, in, in Ireland and in the UK as well. So the paper mill, in fact, was one section of the Clondoken Group, which Henry London Fairnesham had created this group of companies. And um, I think Mary mentioned there that he was a man for you know, the bottom line. Well, he was, in fact, yeah. But he could see that the paper mill, in fact, was losing money and was, in effect, dragging down the group. So this is why he took the... to have the big rationalisation and try and save the paper mill and put this new package together, which, unfortunately, as I said earlier on, was rejected at the time. But Henry Lund didn't have any sort of... Um, he didn't have any great grow, if you like, for the paper mill like Dr Cusick had. Because Cusack loved the paper mill. Paper was his life. Henry Lund, uh, money was his. I mean, you couldn't... First of all, the, the um, pulp mill closed. You couldn't make profit on it. The energy costs were too dear. And, uh, and finally, the last word is with Anne Cusick. That pulp that they made there was used for making newspaper and cheaper products. It was very unrefined wood pulp, and you couldn't make profit with that, so that ceased. And then it was just generally small paper mill. Oh, some of the, mach the machines were kept up to date, but you just couldn't make profit in it. So uh, that was it, closed. Sold to somebody for a pound. End of story. Was that heartbreaking for your father? Clarkson was best pleased about it, but I mean, that's it. Life goes on, and at that stage they had other companies in the group, so it just... That was the end of it. I mean, things change. You can make profit for a while, and then you, if you're not making a profit, you have to close it down. There's no point in going on. Yeah. 
We've come to the end of this week's podcast, Memories of Clondalkin Paper Mill. There were many hours of recordings made for this project, and they're all available to see on our website, that's irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week.